This hearing of the Subcommittee on State Department and USAID Management, International Operations, and Bilateral International Development is entitled Improving the Effectiveness of the State Department. I'd like to begin by welcoming our witness, Inspector General of the State Department and Broadcasting Board of Governors, Steve Linick. Steve, thank you for being here today. I understand you changed your schedule to be here today, uh, and we very much appreciate that and look forward to your testimony. The OIG is dedicated to assessing the State Department's programs and operations and making recommendations to strengthen, it, strengthen its integrity, effectiveness, and accountability. As such, the OIG is dedicated to detecting and preventing waste, fraud, abuse, and mismanagement. Today's hearing will be an important opportunity to examine State OIG's mission and oversight efforts, your new initiatives, and to hear about any challenges that you face in carrying out your mission. It has come to our attention, Mr. Linick, that there are a number of things that we in Congress can do to help you in your job. I look forward to discussing those with you this morning and to get your insights. As you may know, Chairman Corker is leading the effort to draft and pass into law the first State Department reauthorization bill in 13 years. We certainly welcome your suggestions. With that, I'd like to thank and recognize our ranking member, Senator Kane, and I look forward to working with you on these important issues. Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and, and thanks to our witness, uh, Steve Lenick. Uh, we do begin a hearing uh, as part of a set of hearings about State Department authorization. As Chairman Purdue mentioned, we haven't done this in over a decade, and so it's very important that we get to this work, and today's hearing is part of that effort. Uh, thank you for the uh, testimony today uh, and a testimony before other Senate committees recently. And I also want to highlight your service as an assistant unit U.S. attorney in Virginia from 1999 to 2006. You've got a long and distinguished uh, track record as a public servant. OIGs serve an essential and critical role in holding government agencies and officials accountable to citizens. Uh, there is a trend toward use of uh, OIGs, uh, not just in the federal government, but in state and local governments as well, which is very positive. Uh, one of the newest state IG offices was created in Virginia in 2011. And I look forward to your assessment of your office's strengths, challenges, and priorities based upon your 19 months as service to the Department of State. I know that you've highlighted a couple of issues in your testimony. I'm particularly interested in ongoing coordination of OCO accounts used in Iraq, Afghanistan, and elsewhere. I also want to make sure that we can discuss what we can do together to ensure that the Department of State is more quickly complying with and implementing important OIG recommendations. Uh, but thanks again for your service, your testimony today, and I believe this can be a helpful exchange as we work toward the broader issue of both the effectiveness of your office, but uh, State Department reauthorization. Thanks, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Uh, and now we're going to hear from our witness, Inspector General Steve Linick. Uh, Mr. Linick. Chairman Perdue, Ranking Member Kane, members of the uh, subcommittee, thank you for inviting me to testify regarding the work of the Office of Inspector General for the Department of State and the Broadcasting Board of Governors, the BBG. Today I will be addressing four topics. First, I'm going to start by giving you an overview of OIG's missions and priorities. Second, I'm going to describe some new initiatives my staff and I have put into place since I was sworn in almost 19 months ago. Next, I'm going to discuss some of the most significant challenges facing OIG specifically and the department as a whole. And finally, I'm going to talk about the impact of OIG's work. Let me start with an overview. Because OIG's focus is on the operations and work of the State Department and the BBG, its inspectors, auditors, investigators, and evaluators focus on U.S. government operations worldwide, involving more than 72,000 employees 
and 280 overseas missions along with oversight of the departments and the BBG's significant domestic operations. But our office is unique from others because OIG has historically and is required by law served as the Department of State's inspection arm. Let me turn to my priorities. First, protecting the people who work in the department is our top priority. OIG has inspected physical security at overseas posts for years. However, since the 20, uh, September 2012 attacks on U.S. diplomatic facilities and personnel in Benghazi, Libya, OIG has stepped up its oversight efforts related to security. There's no doubt the department has made progress in improving overseas security. Nonetheless, challenges still remain. Through our inspection and audit work, we continue to find notable security deficiencies, placing at risk our posts and personnel. Second, OIG has enhanced its efforts to oversee the department's management of contracts and grants, which total approximately $10 billion in 2014. Contract and grant management deficiencies, including lack of training, weak oversight, and inadequate monitoring have come to light repeatedly in OIG's audits, inspections, and investigations over the years. Lastly, we continue to be very concerned about the department's management of IT security. OIG's assessments of the department's efforts to secure its IT infrastructure have found significant recurring weaknesses, including inadequate controls around who may access and manipulate systems. I now turn to new OIG initiatives. Since joining the OIG, my staff and I have implemented a number of new practices intended to enhance the effectiveness of our work. We have adopted the practice of issuing management alerts and management assistance reports in order to flag high-risk issues requiring immediate attention. Another new initiative has been our creation of a new office in OIG, the Office of Evaluations and Special Projects, also known as ESP. This office complements the work of OIG's other offices by focusing on high-risk special projects and evaluations of pressing concern to the Department, the Congress, and to the American people. We also have enhanced our efforts to identify and refer appropriate cases to the Department for suspension and debarment. Next, I would like to address two significant challenges facing OIG that I believe impede OIG's ability to conduct effective oversight. First, although the Inspector General Act requires OIG to be independent, my IT infrastructure lacks independence because it is largely controlled by the Department. While we have no evidence that our data has been compromised, the fact that the contents of our network may be accessed by large numbers of Department administrators puts us at unnecessary risk and does not reflect best practices on IT independence within the IG community. Second, unlike other IGs, my office is not always afforded the opportunity to investigate allegations of criminal or serious administrative misconduct by department employees. Department components, including the Bureau of Diplomatic Security, are not required to notify OIG of such allegations that come to their attention. If we are not notified, we have no opportunity to investigate. This arrangement is inconsistent with the Inspector General Act and appears to be unique to the Department. The Departments of Defense, Justice, Homeland Security, the Treasury, and the IRS, Agriculture and Interior defer to their IGs for the investigation of criminal or serious misconduct by their employees. Their IGs have the right to decide whether to conduct the investigations themselves or refer them back to the agency components. Particularly where senior officials are involved, the failure to refer allegations of misconduct to an independent entity like the OIG necessarily creates a perception of unfairness as management is seen to be investigating itself. Finally, 
I'd like to close by talking about the impact of our work. In my written testimony, I quantified some financial metrics demonstrating our positive return on investment to taxpayers. But financial statistics do not adequately reflect some of our most significant impacts, the safety and security of people and the integrity of the department's operations and reputation. Those are key motivators for our employees, many of whom are on the road for long periods of time or will serve for extended periods at dangerous posts. I'm honored to serve alongside and lead them. In conclusion, Chairman Perdue, Ranking Member Kane, members of the subcommittee, thank you again for the opportunity to testify before you today. I take seriously my statutory requirement to keep the Congress fully and currently informed, and I look forward to your questions. Uh, thank you, Mr. Linick. I appreciate your comments. Uh, we'll begin, I'll begin the questioning today. We'll, we'll have seven minutes. Uh, Senator Kane and I are the two members here. As the members uh, join us, uh, we'll have them um, engage as well. My first question uh, follows some testimony that, that you gave uh, about 2012 and the attacks there um, on U.S. diplomatic personnel in Benghazi. Uh, the OIG since then has stepped up its oversight efforts as you testify. Can you describe what those efforts are to improve the, the physical security and also how do you um, go about evaluating the security of other embassies around the world? Um, Senator, we, um, we actually assess security in two ways. First of all, we've looked at security from a systemic point of view. Uh, in a 2013 report on the Accountability Review Board process, um, we looked at how the department implements Accountability Review Board recommendations across the board. The Accountability Review Board, as you know, uh, is convened by the secretary where there's loss of life, uh, substantial um, uh, injury, et cetera. We found in that report that after reviewing 126 recommendations from 12 different ARBs between Dar es Salaam and Benghazi, 40% of the recommendations were repeat recommendations uh, pertaining to security, intelligence gathering, uh, and training. And we found the reason why uh, that occurred is because of a lack of sustained commitment over the years by department principals in making sure recommendations were implemented. In fact, we found many of the same recommendations in the Accountability Review Board uh, for, the, for the Benghazi to be the same recommendations. So, I'm sorry, yes, would sir. that go back years? I mean, that, that practice of, of having recommendations like that, uh, you know, the past decade or so? Yes, sir. We looked at uh, 14 years' worth of recommendations over 12 accountability review boards. Okay. And um, we found that uh, in, order, in order to uh, properly implement those recommendations, accountability had to be at the highest levels of the department. We've made recommendations to, to that effect. Um, we also look at security on a more targeted basis. As you know, we conduct inspections of posts around the world. Every single inspection we do of an embassy involves a security inspection. We have highly qualified security inspectors who look at everything from whether or not um, the walls are high enough to whether or not uh, there's a proper setback to whether their um, emergency action plans are, are properly uh, in order. Uh, and we, we do that across the board. And, and we, you know, we do continue to find deficiencies when we go to um, various locations. The other way we do it is through our audits, and we do audits of various programs. Uh, for example, we reviewed um, 
the local guard force that protects our embassies, whether or not they're properly vetted by security contractors who hire the guards, and whether they are properly overseen by our regional security officers um, who have responsibility for making sure that they're doing their job. So those are the ways in which we, we conduct our inspections. How often do you do those inspections? Well, we do, um, we do about um, eight, uh, uh, let's say every eight years we're able to perform a, a domestic inspection and every 11 years an overseas inspection. Um, we try to get to as many uh, locations as, as possible, but really it's, it's, we use a risk-based approach. So we do a survey and we find out if there are problems at any particular posts. Um, we also look at a post and assess whether it's receiving a large uh, amount of money for foreign assistance. Uh, if it's a high threat post, we will take that into consideration as to whether or not to go to a particular facility. Um, and now that we have responsibility for joint oversight of the Operation Inherent Resolve, we look at posts that play a role in, in that effort. Well, I, I just returned from a trip out there, and I can tell you that uh, the State Department people um, are an amazing group, uh, dedicating their careers to multiple assignments around the world, changing every few years. I was very impressed with uh, their um, morale and their effectiveness out there. I'm, I'm, I'm encouraged by your testimony. I did have one question, though. You testified that you're having trouble with the five-year inspection requirement. Uh, help me understand what's involved in that as well. Um, so the Foreign Service Act requires our office to conduct uh, inspections once every five years. Um, and uh, I just want to just step back and, and make one observation about that. We're, we're unique among the IG community in that we have a statutory requirement to conduct these inspections because we're also doing audits and investigations. So that um, obviously um, reduces our ability to, to do some of the other work. Um, but on the five-year inspections, we're not able to meet that requirement. We simply don't have the staff. But I really think that uh, a better approach, frankly, is um, to, to do it on a risk-based approach like we're doing it now. Um, we, we try to get out to posts where there are truly, you know, where there are truly issues, whether we think there are financial issues or some of the other issues that I, that I just mentioned. But we're not able to get out every five years, and it would take an extraordinary increase in staff and resources in, in, in order to be able to do that. All right, let me change gears just a minute. Uh, as we work on the, uh, this reauthorization bill uh, in the full committee, what opportunities for increased effectiveness do you see? And this is a long-winded answer. I'll have time to come back. I've got about a minute left. So if you'll give me just the high, high uh, highlights here in terms of improving effectiveness at the State Department, if you had the top two or three priorities, what, what would you recommend based on all the work that you've been doing? Um, in terms of uh, some items that would help the IG perform its right. job? Right. So I would say there are two um, there are two issues that, uh, that come to mind. Number one is our ability to get uh, early notification of uh, misconduct involving uh, serious or criminal activity and our ability to uh, investigate that, at least decide whether we are going to investigate that and return it back to the department. So that's sort of the number one. The second issue is what I mentioned in my oral testimony is IT independence. We really need to be independent from the department. Um, we have a lot of sensitive information 
uh, on our network. So I would say th those two things would be on, on the top of my list. Okay. Well, thank you, Ms. Oenick. My time is up. Uh, I'll yield to uh, Senator Kane. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Um, I, I think my questions are going to go significantly more than seven, so I'll just do seven, and then we'll probably have second rounds. And, and um, Mr. Lenick, I'll take them in the order that you did. I'm going to go missions and priorities, sort of new missions, and then challenges. Um, on the missions and priorities, I, I'm glad that your first one is protecting embassy personnel. Um, like Chairman Purdue, I've, I've been so proud of the people that I've met. You know, when you go to that uh, any of the facilities that we have around the world. You really are proud of our people. You, I, I went to the um, U.S. Embassy in Beirut, and when you see the memorial there to all the folks with the State Department who lost their lives in the 80s and 90s, it's very sobering. And the sacrifices uh, are sometimes more mundane than that, but they're sacrifices of being away from family and serving in tough places. And so that's got to be number one. Your, your written testimony suggests that you think that the, the focus on security improvements um, has not been one that is, uh, I guess, been subject to sustained oversight from the State Department leadership. I think that's the word that you use, uh, in particular with respect to ARB recommendations uh, following Benghazi, but I think more generally that the, when there are recommendations about security improvements, it, it sounds as if what you're testifying is that they're sort of you know, really sharp focus on it, but then maybe wavering attention because of other priorities. Could you elaborate on that a little bit? Because that, that should be all of our concern. Well, uh, let, let me say this. I think the department has taken significant steps in addressing our security recommendations. In fact, we are currently uh, reviewing the department's compliance with the Benghazi ARB recommendations. There are 29 of them. Yep. Um, so I'm encouraged by, by the steps they're taking. Um, in terms Will you, or is that the kind of thing where you'll issue a report about we've reviewed compliance with the Benghazi ARB recommendations and here's our assessment, is that foreseen and when might that happen? Uh, yes, sir. We are actually in, in progress uh, with that report and we should be uh, issuing something um, uh, probably in the next couple of months on, okay. on, on that. Mm -hmm. um, but um, in terms of implementation of recommendation, I think you, I think you, you got it right when you said it, what happens is uh, if they're not uh, implemented from the top, um, they tend to be delegated out to the bureaus and there's a dispersion of authority. So implementation, the responsibility is delegated down the chain with the changes of administration, institutional shift. Um, they, they, there tends not to be the follow through that, that you would want to see, especially with the Benghazi, R, excuse me, the, the ARB, uh, ARB recommendations over the years. Mm -hmm. um, and there's not a, there hasn't been a loop back to the principals, you know, the deputy secretary, the secretary on the progress of implementation of those recommendations. So what we're trying to do is say, look, accountability for those recommendations needs to be at the deputy secretary level. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I... And I know the department is, is working on that and we're assessing that uh, right now. One of the areas that I was very concerned about in reading the ARB report, and you may just want to highlight this briefly because if you're going to report about this, we'll get the full report later, but is the use of private contract security at some of the embassies or consular facilities, whether there's sufficient vetting uh, when private contract security is used. I know in, the, in, in uh, Benghazi, some of the private contract security were local folks. They were on sort of a work stoppage because of debates about pay that, you know, could have led them to be less than, I mean, frankly, less than focused on doing the job because of some dispute 
um, with the uh, with the State Department over that. Uh, how how is your review going on this question of do we appropriately vet uh, local security when we hire them abroad? So that is an area of of concern to me because uh, all it takes is one bad actor who's guarding our embassy for something to happen, and. Um, we did, we did do some work on vetting security guards. We looked at six of them at various posts around the world, including some high-threat posts, and we found that all of them were not thoroughly vetting security guards. And, and, and um, again, you, know, you have to make sure these guards don't have criminal background, criminal histories, and, and uh, there's a whole panoply of, of um, uh, qualities that you need to check. Um, so not only do our not only do the companies who hire these guards have responsibilities, yeah. but also the department does in making sure they know who's guarding their embassy. So we found problems with that, and this is an issue which we're pursuing. We're currently looking at um, the employment, how vetting is going with locally employed um, folks at our at our embassies as well. So this is just this is a constant mm -hmm. issue that that I think deserves a lot of attention. Because uh, I said, all it takes is one bad actor. Is the responsibility for doing the vetting of local security fully on the State Department shoulders, or do the Marine Security Guard units that are assigned to diplomatic posts have any responsibility over that role? No, the responsibility, the responsibility is really on both the, the, the contractors who are hired, but ultimately it's the regional security officer okay. um, who, who needs to make sure that, that he's satisfied with the guards that are selected. It segues nicely into your second uh, uh, mission, which is managing contracts and grants. I mean, security contracts are just a kind of contract. Um, I'm on the Armed Services Committee, and we have a readiness committee hearing this afternoon where acquisition reform and managing contracts and grants is going to be the topic. So I think this is a, a big picture issue. And I noticed that the next mission and priority you have of your three is maintaining IT security. And I would suspect that that may also tie into the managing contracts and grants because I, I would imagine that some of that within the State Department is done by outside contractors. Am I right about that? I think that's right, yes. Um, I've often heard it said in the Northern Virginia uh, uh, contracting community, which is pretty big, there's, there's a lot of general concerns about sort of the acquisition and grant management workforce. So to, to what extent, you know, to the extent that you have an opinion about this, in managing contracts and grants or maintaining IT security to the extent that it's contracted out. Um, is, are, are there issues kind of on the personnel side about the, the size, the qualifications, the, you know, the numbers or the qualifications of our acquisition workforce that, that manage these contracts and grants? Well, I think that, um, uh, I guess there are two issues here. There, there, we have definitely identified issues with the folks um, who are supposed to be managing the contracts at the department. There's not enough of them. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, for, we're doing one audit right now where we found that um, a contractor was submitting invoices, but the invoices, there weren't enough contracting personnel within the State Department to oversee those invoices, so they were just basically signing off mm -hmm. without validating them and double-checking them. So there's that issue. There's a lack, uh, issue of lack of training. Um, as well, uh, you know, we need contracting officers and grant officers who, who understand all the rules and so forth. Um, we have a problem with the rotation. Uh, our RSOs, our regional security officers at post, are also responsible for overseeing uh, contracts and grants, and they're, they're rotating in and out, so there's a lack of continuity there. Uh, so th there's sort of a whole host, and there's also 
Another significant issue is the maintenance of our contract files. Uh, we recently did a report where um, we looked at contracts uh, over the last six years and found that there were $6 billion worth of contracts that were either incomplete or missing. Uh, now, since then, the department has found some of those contracts, but you know, if you don't have the contracts, the contract files, as a, if you're a contracting officer, how do you ensure that the government is getting the goods that it's bargained for? I'm, uh, I'm over time, but I'm going oh, to come back to this when I get, uh, okay. I'm going to pick up right there when I come back, <laughs> Mr. Chair. Thank you, Ranking Member. Uh, Senator Johnson, you're up. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Inspector General Linick, uh, in, in your testimony, you're talking about a review that uh, your office has conducted. I don't believe, was that under your uh, guidance on, on the ARB uh, with Benghazi? No, the Benghazi ARB uh, was completed right before I got there. But you have reviewed the process of that ARB? Is that correct? Is that well, since, since I arrived, um, we've uh, undertaken work to see how the department is complying with the Benghazi ARB recommendations. In other words, they're 29. How, how are they doing? What progress have they made? Okay, and that's what I gleaned from your, your testimony. Uh, do you have any plans whatsoever of still trying to get some answers to a number of unanswered questions that certainly I have in terms of, you know, who knew what when? Uh, what ever happened to security quests? Uh, where were those security quests denied? Where, where were the decisions made that actually security actually be ramped down in Benghazi? Are, are, are you thinking about uh, uh, taking a look at that? Because the ARB did not answer those questions. Uh, we've had some, several probes. And I know there's, there's a special committee in the House trying to get to those answers, but we're, ha we're being very frustrated. This is two and a half years since the tragedy of Benghazi, and, and we still don't know some very basic answers to some very basic questions. Well, there have been a lot of probes, as you've, uh, as you've mentioned, on this topic. We have been forward-looking. We've taken our resources and tried to figure out whether or not the department is currently complying uh, in, on, with security guidelines and so forth, and whether they are implementing the ARB recommendations. Uh, that's, where, that's the direction we have been going. Which is important. I mean, obviously, we have to look forward. We, we need to make sure that uh, you know, these tragedies don't occur in the, the future. But you know, from my standpoint, uh, one, one of the primary functions of the Inspector General's offices is not only that transparency and not, not only the recommendations that are forward-looking, but also looking back and being able to hold people accountable. And, and I, I'm just not aware that, you know, I think the primary actors in the Benghazi instance have been held accountable. Do, do you believe so? You know, we didn't look at that. Obviously, the Benghazi Accountability Review Board made a, a number of conclusions on that. Uh, again, there's been a lot of a lot of reports, a lot of probes on that. Um, it, you know, I'm happy to work with the committee if, 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 if you think I should be looking at something in particular. Oh, oh, I As do. I said, I've been trying to take our limited resources and make sure that, uh, at least try to make sure that we don't have another tragedy again through our inspections and so forth. Obviously, we'll never be able to stop them completely, but that's I, I guess goal. one of the things I'd like to do is, is we had uh, uh, Deputy Secretary uh, uh, Kennedy in front of our uh, Homeland Security Committee, a subcommittee. Uh, this was in the last Congress. And I took that occasion because he, he refused the invitation to, to uh, testify before this committee, committee on the same day. So I took that opportunity to ask him a series of questions, uh, which I did not get very forthright answers in the committee. And then we, we submitted those questions for the record, which we have not gotten any reply to whatsoever. So I, I'm not quite sure how we can hold an administration accountable, how we can hold the the, those officials that were at the heart of, of the matter, that, that made the key decisions that I think, you know, that were really 
derelict in their duty that result in the death of four Americans, if we don't know who made the decisions, how do we actually hold people accountable? Look, accountability is uh, obviously part of our job, and we try to hold people accountable in the department uh, through a variety of mechanisms, through investigations, our inspections, audits. Um, the, the three, um, there are three areas which I think pertain to accountability. Um, one is accountability for implementing our recommendations over time, and that's something that we have been focusing on uh, heavily. Um, the other is accountability for making sure our contracts and grants are overseen properly and our contracting offices are, are held accountable. Uh, and the other, the other area is making sure that there's accountability for the IT network, which uh, has huge vulnerabilities. Well, as you're aware, I'm, I'm certainly uh, highly supportive of, of strengthening the Office's Inspector General, your ability to access information. Uh, I'd like to be able to strengthen Congress's ability to actually get information from, from this administration. One of the things I will do is we'll, we'll submit a letter to you uh, asking those exact same questions, and, and maybe you can have greater success uh, in your role within that department as the independent auditor, the, the Office of Inspector General. Maybe you can get some of these questions that not only I think you should be asking, not only should I think the administration be asking, not only do I think this Congress should be asking, but I, I think they're, they're questions to answers that the American people deserve. The American people deserve to know the truth. They haven't got it yet. So I'll submit that letter to your office, and I would appreciate uh, the, the help of your office in trying to get those answers for the American people. Yes, sir. Thank you, Mr. Linick. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Linick, we're going to go start a second round. I know uh, the ranking member has got other questions. I've got a few here. I'd like to, to uh, change directions and, and talk about the IT point that you brought up in your testimony this morning. You mentioned that uh, there have been attacks uh, on the State Department's network and that that compromises uh, the, the IG's work relative to being uh, on the same network. Can you talk about that in a little more detail and talk about what you're doing to protect your independence and, and whether you need to be totally independent on a separate network? I mean, what, what is your recommendation or what are you doing to, uh, to protect IG's independence? Um, I think that... Um your point is well taken to the extent that the department uh, suffers from uh, attacks. We suffer from attacks because we're on the same network. Um, we've taken a number of steps uh, since I've been in, in office. Um, first of all, we've asked the department to agree not to come onto our system without, without us without asking permission. And we, we have finally, we've gotten that agreement from the department. Um, but we need more than that because right now, um, we, are, we are sort of in a uh, gated community, if you will, uh, where we rent, we, our IT system is, we rent our IT system and the IT folks at the department have the keys to our IT system. So they really have access, unfettered access to the system if they wanted to. They could read, modify, delete any of our work. We have sensitive grand jury materials. We have so long- So how far, I'm sorry to interrupt, how far down in State Department organization um, does that access, is that access provided? Is that throughout the organization? Or well, it's, it's State Department administrators um, have access to, to our system, and as well as any other so system. So during an investigation, your, your files are open to the, the hierarchy of the State Department? Well, they're not open, but if an administrator wanted to, and again, we don't have evidence of this, if an administrator wanted to, he or she could come onto our system um, with their with their access, that that's the problem. I mean, they come onto our system as it is with security patching and, and all uh, for legitimate reasons. 
So how is that done in other departments? Well, very, at the very basic level, there's, there, some de departments differ in the way they handle it. Um, generally, you know, there's, there's, there's a firewall or some sort of form of protection um, against that type of intrusion because an IG just can't uh, protect confidentiality of witnesses and information if there is a possibility. Now the other way some IGs do it, and this is the way I did it, I did, did it when I was the Inspector General at the Federal Housing Finance Agency, I had a completely separate system and network with my own email address. I was completely off the department's uh, grid. What keeps you from doing that here? Well, I need um, money. <laughs> and I need the department's cooperation. Uh, I would like to be completely separate from the department um, to ensure the integrity of our system, but I also need the department uh, to give us uh, access to the same systems that we have now. And I've, I've actually um, broached this topic with the secretary last Friday uh, and Deputy Secretary Higginbottom. Do you have evidence that the State Department's network has been attacked, and does that affect you guys? There, there, and there has been, there's, there's evidence that has been attacked and it has affected us. I can't really go into details okay. uh, because of the nature of the information. I understand that completely. So what are you doing to protect the independence and how, how can you, short of separating yourself on a separate network, which takes money, as you say, uh, to, to protect the independent, uh, independence of your investigations? Well, um, the, the, we've taken the first step in, in getting the department to agree not to come onto our system. Um, but the next step is, is developing a firewall around our network. Uh, and and we, again, this, this really depends on the department's willingness uh, to do this quickly uh, with us. The other thing, the other thing we're, we're trying to do, um, we have published four what's called FISMA reports over the last four years where we've found recurring weaknesses in the department system. Uh, and that's given us a lot of pause because I'm not so sure if, if, if we have problems with, in the department system, that obviously leads to vulnerabilities in our own system. Um, so let me just be clear that are you, are you, don't let me put words in your mouth, but are you getting cooperation from um, the organization, the State Department organization with regard to, to this particular IT issue relative to independence? I think independence is critical if you're gonna be objective in your evaluations. You've gotta have access, but you also have, have to be protected in terms of the information confidentiality, as you just said. Um, are, are, is it a cooperative attitude that you're, uh, that you're seeing? I mean, is this something that's moving forward? Can we bank on the fact that this is going to get taken care of, or do we need to talk to the, uh, the other members of leadership and State Department? Well, I, I know that Deputy Secretary Higginbottom is looking into this issue, and she's been very receptive um, uh, and helpful to us in general. I will say the process has been very slow. Uh, it took us months just to get the Bureau of Diplomatic Security to sign an agreement not to come onto our system uh, without approvals, and, the, and that's only in limited circumstances. So it's a, it's a slow process, it's a big bureaucracy, um, and um, so I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic. Well, good. I, I'm going to yield the rest of my time and allow, uh, uh, I ask Senator Murphy uh, to have access to uh, question, his questions now at this point. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. Thank you for being here today. Um, I, uh, I note that your official title is Inspector General for the U.S. Department of State and the Broadcasting Board of Governors, and so I wanted to ask you uh, just a few questions as to the second appendage on your title. 
um, you know, the work of uh, the BBG is perhaps more important now than ever as we're fighting very sophisticated propaganda campaigns from um, non-state actors like ISIS or Boko Haram, but also very complicated propaganda efforts from state actors uh, like um, uh, Russia and their efforts to try to essentially buy up press outlets uh, all around their periphery. Um, having an efficiently run uh, broadcasting board of governors and all of their constituent entities uh, is critical to the work that we do abroad. Um, and yet, the previous reports uh, on both of the work culture uh, and the efficiency of the operation um, have been damning, to say the least. I mean, you very rarely get uh, IG reports that are as straightforward as at least the 2012 report was about the work culture um, at uh, the BBG. And you had a much older report, I think from 2004, 2005, that talked about just tremendous levels of redundancy and duplication within the uh, organization. So I guess my question is open-ended. I, I would just be interested to hear uh, any updates that you have um, on what follow-up there has been at the Broadcasting Board of Governors following that 2012 report, whether uh, you have information to suggest that the kind of inefficiencies that were uh, identified in earlier reports still uh, exist, and whether that's going to be uh, a subject of further uh, introspection or examination for your office moving forward? Uh, well, th thank you for that question. The, the BBG, I would say, is, is a work in progress because, as you uh, noted, we did issue some damning reports um, within the last couple of years, uh, primarily focused on leadership. Uh, it's a part-time board. There are conflicts of interests. Uh, they didn't have a CEO. We recommended that they hire a CEO. They're, apparently, the CEO has only been in place. There has been a new CEO, but apparently he's left. So it's without a CEO again. There were morale problems. Um, I must say in the contracting and grant area, um, there's room for improvement. Uh, we issued a report recently on, on their acquisitions, uh, and we found violations of the Anti-Deficiency Act, um, conflicts of interest, um, uh, problems with their grants. Uh, so so it, it, it continues to be a problem. I know that the, the, the new folks who are over there are trying to address these issues, um, and we're working with them on, on following through. Um, we actually issued um, uh, some recommendations on contract and, and, and grant management uh, pertaining to the, the, the BBG, and, and they're actually um, required by the Appropriations Co Committee to respond to some of those um, recommendations. So, so this is a work in progress. We're on it, and um, we'll keep the committee briefed uh, on this issue. It is again. I sort of you know read it as two different sets of problems. You've got a leadership vacuum there that uh, continues, and leadership deficiencies, and then uh, you've identified structural issues with uh, respect to how they contract. Uh, and also, again, an older IG report talked about tremendous redundancies and uh, duplication. Um, you reference it as a work in progress, which is often a way of talking about something that's slowly getting better, but far too slowly. Uh, do, do, do you, um, if you identify those two problems as distinct, uh, is one getting better at a rate that's faster than the other? Is one a uh, more lingering and festering problem than the other? I would say I think the leadership 
issue is probably getting better at a, at a faster rate. There's a new board member since we issued yeah. our report and so forth, and um, I think they're they're really trying to address those issues. Um, I, I think the contracting issue um, is not so much a structural problem, but just complying with the rules, um, the federal acquisitions regulations, just d doing it right. So, so I, I know they're working on that as well. Since we have a more recent report on that, I would say that's probably the more pressing issue at the moment. Uh, there's a bipartisan group of us in the House and the Senate working on uh, BBG uh, reform package. Would be, you know, hopeful to work with you and the folks who have worked this book of, of business uh, as we move forward. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Uh, I think uh, the ranking member has a few more questions. Great. Thank you, um, Mr. Linick. I just want to pick right up where I left off. We were talking about the management of contracts and and. Um, uh, you know, maybe some IT contracts, and you were talking about in some instances, it doesn't seem that there's enough contract management personnel. Do you reach a conclusion about that? It, 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 to, is there any degree to which that is because of the sequester? Is it because, you know, choices have been made internally not to hire, you know, to hire more of one staff and less contract acquisition folks? What's your conclusion about that? You know, I think it's a matter of, uh, I mean, we don't have any work to support um, an opinion one way or the other whether they're having problems hiring folks. Mm -hmm. um, from the work we've done, uh, I, I would say it's, it's really a cultural issue because contracts and grants have skyrocketed in the department over the last um, five, ten years. And the department, I think, is having problems keeping up with it. And, and they're trying to do a better job. And there have been improvements. And they've um, accepted many of our recommendations in this area. Um, I, so I, I think it's, it's, it's an issue of, of priorities and, and where they want to put resources. Uh, I, I think it's a cultural issue. Um, you know, contract and grant management is, is not like diplomacy. So. Yeah, that's not why anybody says, I, I want to go to the State right. Department. Right, yeah. Right. And I had the same issue when I was governor with my Department of Transportation. They used to do a lot of projects, and over time they migrated to an organization that managed a lot of projects, but they didn't necessarily migrate their skill set from project engineers to contract managers, and so then there was kind of a mismatch. Maybe there's some of that going on. Um, on, on your new mission, you talked about uh, uh, the use of management alerts and these management assessment reports that you do. Has that been well received as you've been doing that within Department of State? Are folks responsive and, and respond positively to the alerts and reports that you give them? I think they've responded uh, very positively. Um, I, the majority of our recommendations in our management alerts have been accepted and, and the department's been working on them. Uh, and, and the purpose of them really is twofold. One is to stop the bleeding. Yeah. You know, if we're in the middle of an audit, we don't want to wait till the end of an audit. Sure. To, to tell the department, hey, you've got a problem because somebody is, is cheating you. So let's try to stop the bleeding before it happens. Uh, and then the second, um, the second thing we've been trying to do is to the extent that we find um, issues and recommendations unimplemented you know, over the years, the point of the management alerts is to, is to try to repackage it and uh, aim it at leadership, a different set of leadership, maybe a higher set of leaders, uh, and then also repackage the recommendations so they're more broadly, can be more broadly applied across the department. Um, so for example, on the contract management, we've asked the department 
to sample, to do a sampling of their contract files to make sure the files are in order across the board, to, to consider putting more resources into it, to consider, uh, to look at uh, sort of how the, a work plan uh, can a work plan for personnel can be developed so they have enough grant officers and contracting officers. So it has been well received uh, and in fact the Appropriations Committee in their joint explanatory statement picked up on our recommendations and asked the department to respond to those recommendations uh, which they have. So that really helped us out having sort of Congress's uh, sort of endorsement behind the recommendations and support for complying with them. Mm -hmm. um, you did not flag this in your oral testimony in the new challenge category, but as I read your written testimony, I'd call OCO a new challenge because it was kind of handed to you in 2014 along with DOD and what's the other agency? It's state. USAID. And USAID. So talk a little bit about the work that you guys are doing together to get a handle on the way we manage uh, OCO expenditures. So we have three OCOs, uh, which have developed yeah. in the last four months, which is um, quite a stretch for, for our resources. We've got United, uh, Operation United Assistance for Ebola and Operation Freedom Sentinel for Afghanistan and, of course, Operation Inherent Resolve, which is ISIL. Mm -hmm. um, we have been on the first one, excuse me, the Operation Inherent Resolve, we have been coordinating um, intensely for many months, and we have accomplished a lot. Um, we, we became official in December. Um, John Reimer, the Inspector General for DOD, was uh, appointed the lead IG. Um, and, and since then, we have been coordinating very closely. We have a joint strategic plan, which we've published uh, March 31st, which um, addresses how we're coordinating together. Um, we are... Um, uh, in the process of putting together our quarterly report, which is uh, going to be published sometime at the end of April. Um, and the way we've set it up is um, Operation Inherent Resolve outlined nine lines of effort uh, in, in the um, uh, initiative to address ISIL, one being governance, another being uh, counter-messaging, and, and there are others. And the way we've split up our, um, our duties is to sort of, if State Department is responsible, some of those lines of effort, that would be within my wheelhouse. If DOD's, uh, if some of those lines of effort pertain to DOD, then DOD would be doing the audits in those. And to the extent there's cross-jurisdictional issues, then we do them together. So we are jointly working on strategy, we're jointly working on program analysis and development, and we are jointly working on publishing these reports. We meet regularly. Um, I'm going to be going on a trip um, to Jordan and Turkey to over to see how we're how the State Department is addressing ISIL issues in those two areas. Uh, so it's, it's it's been a robust, uh, but difficult because we're taking it out of base. Uh, we don't have exist. We don't have spe special resources for those. We may give DoD OCO, but we haven't given you an OIG OCO, have we? Yeah. Um, let me switch to the third part of your testimony, uh, challenges. Uh, the chair talked to you well about this IT independence issue, but I want to focus on uh, two. This issue about not being given the same ability as other IG offices to investigate wrongdoing, I, I think that's an interesting one, and I know you're seeking some assistance from us as we do the reauthorization. As I looked at a uh, footnote in your testimony, incidents or allegations which could serve as grounds for disciplinary action or criminal prosecution, will immediately be referred to the OIG or the Bureau of Diplomatic Security or comparable offices in exceptional circumstances the Undersecretary for Management for State may designate an individual. So there's sort of a requirement that if there's wrongdoing that fits in that category, that either diplomatic security or the OIG or potentially somebody else be notified. What would the norm 
be, like in another agency, in your previous work as an as a inspector general, is it a, a dual reporting requirement? You know, report it to the diplomatic security and the OIG, or how how would it uh, normal, it, kind of in a more normal way, be structured? Well, in those agencies which have a law enforcement component like DS, mm -hmm. so in, in DOD with law enforcement components, DHS and so forth, their law enforcement components um, are required to notify them about allegations of serious or criminal misconduct. Are, re are required to notify the IG's office? Correct. Okay. They're required to either by statute yep. mm -hmm. uh, or by regulation. Um, and then the IG is... Um, has the discretion to decide whether it wants to take those cases uh, or, or, or ship them back. And, that, and that's, that's the norm. Um, and, and the reason that is is because there are certain cases that may not be appropriately investigated by uh, the host agency. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so that and so your, your uh, request of us would be in a reauthorization that we try to structure the, the reporting language to the IG somewhat similar to the way uh, DOD would have it. Exactly. We're, we're asking for what the other IGs have in, in terms of legislation, and, and we would ask that uh, if, if that's, uh, that you track that, that legislation, that would be what we'd like. Mr. Chair, I have two more lines of questioning, but if you want to, can I go ahead? Um, the, another change that you ask for, or actually, I'm not sure that you had this in your written testimony, but I just want to make sure we understand it. The Congressional Budget Justification includes a request to change how personal er personnel authorities can be exercised by the OIG to ex expedite reemployment and compensation of retired annuitants to support oversight of the OCO operation. Could you explain the rationale for that request? So again, as we're working on reauthorization, we understand why you're requesting that. We want to be helpful if we can. So um, we have difficulties in our shop of hiring the right people with the right skill set to meet the demands of our mission. Uh, as I mentioned in my testimony, we have a unique mission in that we have this inspection requirement. Um, we need people who know how to how embassies run and who security. We have the the three the three OCOs, um, and we also have um, uh, we have these unanticipated special projects like the special review of the accountability review board, and numerous other special projects that we have teams of people working on. Um, so you know, what we're seeking is, is, is more flexible hiring authorities just generally, you know, people to, so we can hire people who understand embassies better, who understand war zone contracting. Um, in terms of re-employed annuitants right now, we're only able to hire part-time re-employed annuitants. Uh, many of them are doing our inspections, so they can only work, our foreign service re-employed annuitants can only work a half a year, which creates tremendous lack of continuity, and then we have to hire a lot more of them in order to get the job done. We'd like to be able to f hire full-time rehired annuitants. Similarly, um, SIGR, uh, Special Inspector General for Iraq Reconstruction, we have a hard time hiring those folks. They know a lot about wartime contracting and so forth. They have the skill sets, but they don't have competitive status, so we're looking for opportunities to, to grab them as well. Okay, well that, that'll be helpful to us as we tackle reauthorization. Finally, in your, uh, the last section of your testimony and your written testimony too is the impact of your work. I, I found this kind of interesting. First paragraph, you talk about the financial savings that you've achieved by implementation of reports, but then the second paragraph begins, however, these financial statistics do not adequately take into account our most significant impact, our oversight efforts and recommendations to improve the safety of people and facilities, 
are investigations that help ensure that department employees conduct themselves appropriately and our work to strengthen the integrity of the programs, operations, and resources that are at the foundation of the department's ability to help preserve national security. When I read that, I was kind of interested in it because when I was mayor of Richmond, we didn't have an OIG, we had an auditor, and the auditor kind of looked at the, just the numbers, but I guess the difference between an OIG and the auditor is that the OIG is looking at the numbers, but also kind of looking at the broader mission. And, um, and I, as I kind of interpret that testimony, it's got, we're going to look at the numbers and we're going to find savings, but at the end of the day, there is a broader mission, and first is protecting security of our personnel, making sure that folks don't do things wrong without a consequence, and ultimately promoting national security. Uh, and that's really what determines the success of an OIG's office and what the, you know, what the priorities are. Uh, you want to make sure that the State Department's priorities are in the right order. I mean, is that a fair read of your testimony? Yes, and, and, and in the State Department, obviously, there's priorities to protect personnel. Department personnel are most most important asset in the department. They really are heroes, the folks who are at these dangerous posts. Uh, Senator Perdue said earlier, they, they, um, uh, they, they, they do yeoman's work and, and we do need to protect them. And it's not just about the numbers. And we differ from a lot of uh, Office of Inspector Generals in that we have the security mission, which makes the job so gratifying and, and, and great. And, you know, sadly, since, I mean, on the security mission and how important it is, since Benghazi, uh, you've had to evacuate in calendar year 2014 the embassy in Libya, and in calendar year 2015 have had to evacuate our embassy in Yemen. These are not minor matters. When, when the U.S. has to evacuate an embassy because of security concerns, like this is a big, big deal. And um, so that demonstrates that uh, much as we might wish the Benghazi incident were just, you know, a complete lightning strike not likely to occur again, we have to assume that these security challenges, uh, which are first priority, are going to continue to be very, uh, very important to all of us, correct? Yes, sir. Yeah. Thank you, Mr. Chair. No other questions. Very good questions, great answers. Uh, <clears throat> Mr. Lank, I just have one um, quick question here, and we can wrap this up. But I, I want to talk about your relationship to the uh, line management, if you will, of the State Department. One of the causes you have security, uh, you're looking at misconduct, obviously national security, but also the operational effectiveness of the State Department itself, because that affects all of the above. How would you rate, how would you rate the relationship of the IG, the State Department with State Department leadership? Are you getting what you need? You mentioned resources twice. Talk to us just a little bit about, you, you said IT, independence. Uh, you also talked about getting access to these investigations to help you do a better job. I'm looking at, really, in this line of questioning, what have you found operationally inside the State Department that we need to be aware of as we look at this reauthorization? Well, in terms of um, the, the relationship with the department, um, I mean, I have a, ve a very good working relationship with uh, the Deputy Secretary, and I, I meet with the Secretary periodically as well. I just met with him last Friday. Uh, and they, they are open to oversight. They recognize it's important, and, and they recognize the, so the unique role of, of the IG. So they've been responsive uh, to, to resource requests. And, and both of the resource, uh, both of the, the requests that I have in my testimony, uh, they're aware of, and that they're, they've been, you know, the Deputy Secretary has been working on. Um, so so I, I think that um, 
I think that works well, and we also try to meet regularly with uh, other other senior leaders in the department as well. So I think that relationship is important. Um, to be an effective IG, you need to have that, that kind of uh, good working relationship because we can't obviously force them to comply with the recommendations. Uh, in terms of um, operationally, um, I, you know, I would say that um, um, the, secure, the, the, the implementation of the, the recommendations of the, of the ARBs, I, that's something that's been a problem but the department is working on now but we, and that's something we're monitoring. The contracting and grant, I would say, is one of the bigger issues. Mm -hmm. uh, we, I, I really think that they're, uh, they need to step up their oversight of contracts and grants. Uh, so I would say that's probably uh, extremely important priority. And then, and then the IT infrastructure, I mean, after all, um, you know, we've heard about uh, hacking in the news and so forth. This is a very serious issue. There's a lot of sensitive information on their networks, and we need to make sure that our information security system is protected. Uh, to, to me, those are the top priorities. Well, that's all I have. Uh, Senator Kane, do you have any other questions? Well, with that, again, thank you for being here today. This has uh, been very enlightening. Uh, we appreciate your insights, your experience, your work, your dedication that went into your statements and also the effectiveness of your work. Uh, you do a hero's work as well, um, and I want to thank you for that. The record's going to remain open until the close of business on Thursday, April 23rd, for any future submissions, if you'd like. Uh, you may receive questions from other members in that period of time as well, and I would encourage you to answer those uh, in the same manner that you've answered the ones uh, heretofore. And with that, this hearing is adjourned. Thank you very much, Mr. Winnick. Thank you. Thank you.